Learning contentment. For most Americans, they endlessly live for the next thing. Thank God it's Friday because now we have the weekend, the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience, and of course, Mega Millions Lotto, as David mentioned a few moments ago. Boy, I mean, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. The fact is, we're rarely satisfied and often discontent. The gospel plan is exactly the opposite. Philippians 4.11, the Apostle Paul said, I've learned something. I have learned that in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Contentment. What is it? And actually, what is it not? Actually, there's numerous scriptures that either refer to contentment outright or certainly in its practice. It is not just a suggestion, but it is actually a command by God. It's not a natural thing. As Paul said, I have to learn it. I had to learn it. How do we learn contentment? Now, I, a little toddler uh, doesn't have much contentment. They don't get their way. They throw themselves on the floor, and I mean, they just, the world is coming to an end. And while it's not fun, it's, you know, you kind of have to laugh at him a little bit. But you know what? When you see a 62-year-old man throwing a tantrum because he didn't get his Starbucks order right, that's uh, a little bit different. And some people have never learned how to be content and how to deal with situations without just going crazy. It's a strange thing, really, about uh, this world and the things that we have. You would imagine that the more that we have and the more things available to us, the more content we might be. Strangely, it's exactly the opposite. Truthfully, some of the most content people in the world are people who have very little. And often, the most discontent are the ones who have the most. And America, with all of its conveniences, all of its blessings, and yet is perhaps the most discontent society ever in the history of civilization. We are a discontent people. We're discontent with the political scene. We're discontent with our money. We're discontent with the school system, with churches, with families, marriage, husbands, wives, children, education. You name it, we are discontent people. How can we learn to have a biblical contentment? And so this is the third in our series, and we'll do several more weeks here. But uh, complaining certainly is a big part of discontentment, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There was a man who was away on business. He thought it would be a nice thing to bring his wife a little gift when he came out back home. And so he was in the store looking around, well, how about some perfume, the cosmetic clerk asked him. She showed him a bottle costing $50 for perfume. He whined. He said, that's, a, that's too much for me. And uh, so she said, all right. So she returned uh, with a bottle for $30. He said, boy, that's still too much. And he was complaining about the price. Growing annoyed, the clerk brought out a tiny little $15 bottle. You know, he said, what I mean is I'd like to see something really cheap. And so she handed him a mirror. <laughs> there you go. 
complaining. Well, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the reminder in your scriptures to, for us, Lord, to be content and not to complain. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us a good word this morning. Give us, Holy Spirit, wisdom and power. And Lord, I pray that with wisdom and your spirit, we'll preach in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, I just want to say a footnote here. Thank you for receiving uh, Brother Mark Thrift so well last week. He was so blessed to have been here. And I know we were all blessed to have him as well. Thank you for your generosity towards him and your reaching out. He's uh, safe and sound in Tennessee, preaching away. And so thank God for him. Now, I think one reason that we are not content people is because we complain too much. We often complain because we have problems. But I suggest this morning that it is more likely we have problems because we complain. Now, let's go to Philippians chapter 2, if you would, please. We're going to be looking at a couple of verses here in verses 14 and 15 and 16. Now, the first church founded in Europe was this church. This was the first European church. It would, for many of us, be the, our, not only uh, our heritage, uh, European heritage, but it would certainly be our spiritual heritage as well. The Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, uh, founded this church. As a result of that, he had a deep love for these people, and they were very precious to his heart, and they loved him as well. And he was very worried about their spiritual life. He was worried that they would uh, draw back and lose ground and lose focus. And what he was specifically concerned about in this entire book really is about losing their joy. But he was just saying, you know what, despite the circumstances, I don't want you to complain. I want you to just keep looking forward. Now, if anybody could say that uh, with, uh, with conviction to be the Apostle Paul, he was in prison at this time. He had a rough life. He had been arrested illegally. He was awaiting trial. Now, I know that uh, this injustice didn't make him very happy. I know he was grieved at all the things going on, but he found a way to look positive. Look at verse 14, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14. Let's read just this first part there. Ready, begin. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. Let's stop right there. Let's look at that little phrase, all things. What are the things that he's talking about? Well, you have to go back a couple of verses before to find out what he's referring to. And let's go to verse number 12 now. Wherefore, my beloved, notice how sweet they were to him. He were, they were just so uh, precious to him. As you have always obeyed, you've been such a, a good people. You've been so obedient in the Lord, not only when I'm in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Now notice, here's those things he was talking about. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now let me tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean you're supposed to live life always afraid that you're going to die the next second and go to hell. Now it is true, if you don't know that you're saved then you should be afraid of dying and going to hell. But the point here is this. You have to have something before you can work it out. Uh, the, you go to the gym and you work out your body, but you have to have a body before you can work it out. You have to have salvation before you can work it out. And he says, be diligent or 
fear and trembling. And I want you to, I want you to be intentional about making your Christian life just a powerful Christian life. And one of the ways that you're going to do that is by not grumbling and not disputing with the Lord. Don't complain. Don't spend all your life just belly aching about all the things you're going through. Just keep being obedient. Keep trusting the Lord. And do what God calls you to do. There's a reason for the guardrails of God's law. They're for your protection. Don't complain about the cross God's called you to, to carry. Look at verse 14 again. Do all things without murmurings or disputings. Life isn't going to always give you up everything you desire. And God's going to allow some things, some testing, some difficulties. And so he said, I want you just to not complain, but learn to pray. I want you to make sure that you are thankful for the things that come into your life. Somehow, some way, just get a positive spin on what's happening. Notice what it says here. The first word there, do things without murmurings. Murmurings, that's actually the word grumbling. It just is an expression, maybe you might add the word emotional, but an expression of discontent. Literally, if you were just to take it literally what it means, it means to mutter in a low tone. Mumble, 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 grumble, 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 mumble, mumble. Just mumble in a low tone. It is constant complaints expressed in a negative attitude. Let me say that again. It's a good thing to write down. Constant. Well, what is grumbling? Constant complaining with a negative attitude. Just constantly complaining. I mean, about everything. Just absolutely nothing makes that person happy. Now, let me just say what I'm not referring to. I'm not referring to minor displeasure we show because, you know, we have aches and pains and, you know, our body hurts and we're like, oh my goodness, that's not grumbling, that's not mumbling, that's not negativity. We're not even referring to sporadic, good-natured, um, you know, just uh, expressions <laughs> at inconveniences or annoyances. You come out, you're car has a flat tire, and you know, I don't suppose that we're just going to jump around and dance and be happy, uh, but you know, God is saying, move past these things, and don't have this constant negativity, never-ending, griping, complaining, belly aching, just constantly grousing at every turn. I was talking with my four, one of my four-year-old grandsons yesterday, Joshua, and I'm not sure uh, why we were talking about it, but he said, you know what my favorite program is? And I said, what is it, Joshua? He said, Garfield. And I said, you like Garfield? And uh, you know that big fat cat, if you don't know who it is? And Garfield is a, a grumbling, murmuring cat. This cat is never happy. Uh, I like actually uh, reading uh, Garfield myself, so I guess he goes by it honest, but uh, John, Garfield's owner, came to Garfield on and uh, cheerfully looked at him and said, Garfield, it's Monday morning. What are you going to do today? And Garfield just put the blanket over his head and said, I'm going to sleep till Tuesday. And uh, now that's Garfield. Well, the truth is we have a lot of human Garfields complaining, bitter about everything that uh, comes into their life. Notice what it says. It says, just don't live a life always murmuring, grumbling, just constant negativity about everything. Then it says, notice the next word, disputings. Disputings. 
That word actually is a word that means an argument. It's actually a Greek word, dialogue. And so it says here, questionings or a intellectual debate with God. Don't spend your life just grumbling, murmuring with a constant negativity, and don't constantly be having a debate with God about His Word. God's Word, set it, believe it, just settle it in your mind. The first word is centered in our soul, our emotions. The second word is centered in our spirit. It is basically a bitterness with God. God said, don't argue with me about why you have to do what you do. Well, why, you know, why do I have to, you know, get married? And why are the roles in a marriage like this? And why do I have to do this? And why? Just constantly debating with God. God said, don't do that. Don't debate with God about your, the reason you're single. Don't debate with God about the reason you uh, don't have a child. Don't, re- don't debate with God why your job isn't better. Don't debate with God why, do, why you're not prettier or more handsome or have a, more money or better athlete or whatever the case is. God just says, look, don't dispute with God. Don't mumble about your circumstances. Don't dispute with God. Don't have emotional mumbling and don't have this spiritual disconnect with God where you're just tired of what He's doing in your life. There are three things, I think, that create a spirit of discontentment. One of them is our circumstances. It's so easy to think in our life, well, if this thing wasn't there, I'd be content. Or if this thing wasn't there, I'd be content. But the fact is, folks, uh, Something always replaces that thing because God's trying to teach us to find contentment. It doesn't mean to enjoy the pain. It doesn't mean to enjoy the hard times. It just means to find a way to be content through it. Find a way to connect with God. Find a way to endure it His way. But our circumstances. I think there's another way that discontentment births in our heart, and that is through comparisons. Tell you what, comparisons are a killer for our contentment. We watch, uh, some of you ladies may watch a romantic comedy, or uh, you may watch uh, something on TV, or, you know, read some romantic novel, or get on Facebook and chat, and, and before we know it, we become discontent because our husband isn't as romantic as Mr. Mc, uh, whatever his name is on TV, you know, but uh, Mr. Mr. Handsome, and same thing is true. A, a man might be discontent because his wife doesn't look like Kim Kardashian or something like that. But the fact is, here we are. We're we're comparing. We're always comparing. I'll tell you what. Comparisons will kill us. It'll kill us in the business world. It'll kill us in athletic endeavors. Kills us. Uh, in our marriage. I mean, it just, comparisons are terrible. They just are stink, and they make life so unhappy. Just don't worry about comparing ourselves with anybody. Just make sure uh, the best way to do it is compare ourselves with Jesus. Then that really sets it in answer. So make sure, number one, circumstances. Number two, comparisons. Number three, I find in my life the third thing that often creates a spirit of discontentment is commercials. The sole purpose of advertising, whether they be signs on a road or uh, little advertisements in a magazine or something that pops up on your computer or, of course, on the TV or you hear on the radio, the sole purpose is to make us feel discontent. 
and they always associate things, you know. You have a truck there, and you got a guy that's burly and manly and successful, you know. And uh, if you buy that truck, that's what you're going to be. You buy this slick little sports car, you're going to be, you know, a real, uh, a real metropolitan man. Boy, you're going to be slick. And that's what we do. They, that's what the world is out there to do. The commercials will get a hold of us. And I think one big reason for our discontentment is generational. I was reading what a sociologist said recently, and they said that really one of the big issues with the American society, especially in this particular area, is the constant amount of small families. Now, it's no secret now, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago, that the average family size in America is 1.7 children. I know that's a strange thing to say, but... um, like the one brother said, I'm the one, and said to his little sister, you're the point seven. And, uh, but the truth is, we have smaller families, and today, uh, the average, especially middle class family, you know, they get up in the morning, and mama goes over and says, okay, what do you want for breakfast? And uh, then, you know, what do you want on your lunch? And by the time they get out the door, they've already asked the child for 10 things, because they get whatever they want. And then, you know, what do you want for dinner when you come home? And, and uh, it's, you know, everything is about the child, and it's becoming a child-centered society. The fact is, when you have a large family, they get up in the morning, they put it on the plate, and it's there. You eat it. You don't eat it. That's fine. You starve. And uh, we've got into a situation in our society where we are so self-absorbed. And I believe that's really uh, leading a lot into discontentment. Now, notice what it says in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now, what does God feel about these murmurings? What does God feel about these disputings? Here's one verse in the Old Testament, I think, that puts this in great perspective, and that is God hates it. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 39 says, wherefore doth a living man complain. Or why in the world would a, any man that's living complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. Basically, it's saying, wherefore should a living man ever complain? In light of the sins that we've committed, in light of the fact that each one of us deserve hell, you know, when you ask some people how they're doing, they say, better than I deserve. And you know what? That's a good answer because the fact is, this verse reminds us we all deserve hell. We, uh, you know, we have people rioting all across America. We have our rights. We deserve this. <laughs> well, if you got what you really deserved, it wouldn't be what you're thinking because the fact is our, all of us deserve hell. Here's what it says in James chapter 5, verse 9. Grudge not or complain not against one another, brethren. Lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Lest you think that complaining isn't something that God notices. Very clearly, James said, God is the judge, and he is listening behind the door. Picture in your mind a, a little brother and a sister, and he's, you know, talking smack about dad that chastised him for something. And, uh, You better be careful because dad's on the other side of the door listening. And that's what it's saying here. God is listening. It's not just a a static thing that when we express things that somehow it just means nothing. No, God is listening. Our belly aching 
comes before the ears of the Lord. Now, in these verses, the Apostle Paul, now I've set all this up, he gives three reasons, three important reasons why and how to stop complaining. Number one, we should stop complaining for the sake of our own person, our own personhood. Look at verse 15. Let's read it together out loud. Ready? Verse 15, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. Ready? Begin. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now that little phrase where it says, that ye may be, could be really restated this way, with the result that. And so, with the result that, you'll be blameless and harmless if you don't murmur, if you don't grumble, if you don't have these intellectual debates with God, then the result will be you will shine with incredible integrity. You will be a great example as a child of God, as a son of God. As a child of God, you belong to Him. And that's what the point here is this, that for who we are, for the sake of who we are, we should not complain. I'm a child of God. I'm identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. God is my Father. God said, make sure that you, because God is your Father, that you connect to Him and you stand for Him and you're better than this. Complaining about every little thing that peeves you. I saw a little bumper sticker the other day on the back of some car, and it wasn't particularly some fancy car, but it just simply said, money can't buy you class. Money can't buy you class. And I thought, you know what, that's really a, a wise way to say it. And the fact is, you know, just because we buy something doesn't make us classy. We are classy because we are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God said here, you are classy, act like it. You're a child of the King. You are a son of God. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, said, any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain. And most fools do. Look what verse 15 says, that ye may be blameless and harmless. Now, if you will recognize who you are, if you will recognize that you are a son of God, if you will not complain because you're connected to God, then you will be a blameless person. That is a life that doesn't have any blemishes. Blameless means without blemishes, without stain. I was wearing a shirt the other day and I put it on. It was clean when I started out. Pauline had washed it and made it look real nice, but somehow I got some stains on it throughout the day. And um, I noticed a couple of people said, oh, you got a stain on your shirt. Well, you know what? That stain was distracting to them. And so I said, honey, I got some stains on this shirt. And so she, a good wife, she got rid of them all. And that's what God's saying here. Don't live with blemishes because you will be a distracting to the kingdom of God. Live blamelessly. Live without rebuke. Then it says harmless. Be a blameless without blemishes on your life. Just don't, uh, just live with integrity, live biblically. Then it says live harmlessly, which means pure. Actually, it's the word for unmixed as in alloys. You know, you don't put different types of metal together, just pure, or different types of um, grapes together, just pure, uh, or, or to uh, 
dilute it. It simply says, be harmless, that is pure. So God says here, he said, look, the kind of life I'm looking for in your life is I don't want you to, I don't want you to grumble. I don't want you to have these arguments with God about what's going on in your life. Live in such a way that you will be pure and blameless before men, that you'll be a great example of who you are. We often complain about such crazy things. I was in a bathroom the other day, and um, someone was complaining about the smell in the bathroom. Well, now, restrooms typically uh, contain some very strange aromas. I think you'll agree with me. But the particular smell in this bathroom was, was not what you might think. It was actually a very fruity deodorizer. And this uh, fellow was uh, grousing and complaining because he said, man, I wish they'd quit using that deodorizer. Now, I'll tell you one thing, that's complaining right there. When someone is complaining because the bathroom smells nice. <laughs> and what? I mean, this is the kind of crazy world we live in. Titus chapter 2 and verse, four, verse 10 says this, that as a Christian, we should live in such a way that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We should adorn the gospel. Now, why do we clean up and why do we present ourselves in a good way as a Christian? Because we're trying to adorn the gospel. I'm just trying to sell what I have. That's the word it means. Dress it up. Just dress it up. You know, they go, have you ever been to the mall and walking down the mall and you start smelling cinnamon, baked bread that smells like cinnamon? Well, you've done that. And you know that there's not very far down the way there's going to be a cinnamon. And I'm telling you one thing, when that Cinnabon gets in my nostrils, it's, it's all over. I mean, I'm going to go there and buy that thing. But you know what they do? This is actually what they do. They actually pipe the smell of that stuff into the vent system out into the mall. That is exactly what they do. They're following the old uh, advertising motto, sell the sizzle. You know, don't just sell a steak. S Put a, put a guy cooking that steak with a, you know, with a, a big window so people can see that just flaming, you know, and, and then pipe that smell out there. Sell the sizzle. And that's what Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to sell the sizzle. We're supposed to adorn the gospel, make it seem, and it, we can't make it as good as it really is, but we ought to try. God said adorn the gospel, and that's what a life of, of contentment does. It sells the sizzle. But when we blow it and we blow up and everything from a stuck zipper to, you know, a long line or whatever, folks, that is a terrible advertisement for our Lord. Be sure, God said, because of who you are, because you're a son of God, a child of God, make sure that you just don't live a life of complaining. Be content. Two construction workers were eating lunch one day. One of them said, man, I hope I don't have another meatloaf sandwich. I'm getting tired of meatloaf. Opens up his meatloaf. The next day, the construction worker opens his sandwich again and says, meatloaf again? Man, I hate meatloaf. Third day, sitting there next to the same construction workers, he said, oh, my goodness, meatloaf again. I'm getting tired of the meatloaf every day. His coworker had been eating lunch with him every day, and every day had been hearing this guy complain about meatloaf. He got tired of it. He said, hey, man, 
listen, why don't you just get your wife to fix you a different kind of sandwich? Just tell her. The first guy replies, why? My wife? What are you talking about? I'm not married. I make my own lunch. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is, we are making our own lunch. And when we complain, we're just making our life so terrible because we're complaining about it. We make our own lunch. Stop complaining for the sake of our own person. Number two, stop complaining for the sake of people. Look at verse 15, the second part of that verse. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here's the main issue. God said, don't complain, don't be content with your life, because you are God's children shining as lights in the world. Here he's pointing out that being effective as a Christian comes down to two things, personality and proclamation. Personality and proclamation. It is who you are and it is what you say. God said you are special and what you say is important. Words matter. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. In John chapter 17, Jesus, God the, God the Son, Jesus, was praying to God the Father and was saying, I don't want you to take them out of the world. What? I just want you to make sure that the world doesn't get into my followers. He wanted us to be in the world. And you know, we really do shine the brightest when the things around us get the darkest. Everybody can complain. Everybody can be upset. Everybody can, you know, just uh, blow off. But a Christ lover, a God lover, can live differently in a crooked and perverse world. You perhaps have heard of, uh, you see that word crooked? You maybe have heard of the medical ailment scoliosis. It's a curvature of the spine. One of our daughters uh, had a very severe scoliosis. This is the exact same Greek word there. It is skalios, and it means scoliosis. And it is saying this world is way out of alignment. If you were to take a plumb line and hold it up, you would take this world and you would see, man, it's just crazy. It is way out. And that's what he says here. It is crooked. We live in a crooked world. And then he says, it is perverse, corrupt and perverse. Now, the folks, that's the world we live in. And so what he says here is, in this crooked world that's like this and perverted, perverse, you live in a perverted world. Just get it in your mind. You live in a crooked world. Get it in your mind. And I'll tell you what, there are more crooks today than there's ever been. I mean, if you don't, they don't get you one way, they'll get you another. You can't even hardly use your credit card without wondering if someone's going to be a crook. We live in a crooked world. We live in a perverse society. Every kind of a crazy thing that you'd ever imagine. God said, now in that kind of a world, you shine as lights. You shine as a light. I love what Daniel chapter 3 says, one of my favorite Old Testament verses. And they that be wise shall shine as the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So many people want to be a star. Boy, if I could just be a star. People go on YouTube and do ridiculous things just so they can have 100,000 followers or, or a million followers, and they'll just be crazy. God said you can be a star God's way. Turn many to righteousness Shine like a bright light. 
I just read that China now is doing something unusual. They are actually launching a satellite so that they can put an artificial moon in the sky. The uh, streets of one particular province there are very dark at night. They don't have the energy they need to have, and they want to save energy and on and on. So they're going to put a satellite with all kinds of mirror on it, and they say that it will reflect six times the amount of the sunlight that the moon will. And so they're going to put that thing up there, and it's going to rotate up there in the sky at the right time and shine down on uh, the society. They're checking things out, what it'll do to the vegetation and things like that. But I thought, you know what, isn't that something? They are just launching that light up there, that reflecting light, so that it would be a, a great help to this dark world. And I tell you what, we need to launch ourselves out like a, like a satellite for the Lord and reflect Him in this world because we live in a crooked and perverse world. And so God said, <coughs> for the sake of the people of this world, we need to shine. And one of the best ways is don't live with constant negativity, constantly complaining, constantly bellyaching, constantly griving. He said, look, live better than that. Work out your salvation. Live with the cross God has given you. Uh, abide by the rules of God's Word. Don't let it bug you. Just serve God and live for God. And then, number three, not only stop complaining for the sake of who we are, our own person. <coughs> number two, not only stop complaining for the sake of people around us, but stop complaining for the sake of your pastor. Now, I know you think that I've come up with this verse here, but I didn't. Notice in verse 16, holding forth the word of life, don't complain, be, a, be someone who's different than that, that I may rejoice. Make me happy, Paul said. Make me happy in the day of Christ. What for? That I have not run in vain and labored in vain. He said, folks, I, I mean, he, I'm not complaining. He said, I've enjoyed this journey. But he said, I've put a lot of work into this thing. I have done a lot. I've put up with a lot to get out the gospel. And you know, I, I came here. I, I didn't have to come here, but I came all the way to Philippi to tell you the gospel. I have I've endured so much. And he said, I've put a lot of time into this thing. And I don't want to lose it. I, don't wanna, I want you to stick with this now. And he said, if for no other reason you shouldn't complain just to make your pastor happy. He said, you know, life is a race. That's what he points out here. He said, it's a, I run in vain. Life is a race. Did you know that? Now, you may not know that at uh, 20, but at my age, you will know life is a race. I'm to the point now where how much can I get done for the kingdom of God before I die. It is a race against the clock. It is a race against when I run out of energy. It is a race against resources. It is a race. Life is a race. Life is also work. And Paul said, look, I am jealous over the work. Now, those of you who have, uh, know a little bit about this church and our campus and the journey we've been on, you know that uh, and I was reminded about it this week as I had breakfast with Brother Thrift over at Chuck's in uh, Stockton. We sat down for a few minutes, and 
I uh, recounted uh, some of the early days of just being on this campus, and it was crazy, and it's, it's still <laughs> challenging, but I mean, it's just absolutely berserk what we went through. And now, with all that we've been through, do you think that maybe I might be a little sensitive about making sure that this continues for the next generation? I'll guarantee it I am. I'll tell you one thing, I am super concerned. I want to make sure because, you know, we put so much work into this. I don't want, can, what, can you imagine what happened if this campus fell into the wrong hands and what would happen on this campus? Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't that be terrible? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He said, well, I'm going to tell you something. He said, I've worked really hard. And he said, I want you to shine and I want you to be a complaining person for my sake. James Dobson said that parenting is not for cowards. And that's true. But let me just say even more true is what Paul says here, and that is that being a spiritual parent is hard work. You admonish, you labor in the Word and in prayer. And notice uh, here what the Apostle Paul said. He said, you need to know them which labor among you. Now, we know that the word pastor means shepherd. And any good shepherd should know his sheep. But here God is saying that the sheep should know their shepherd. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? And that is uh, to know him, meaning acknowledge him, respect him, esteem him. And that's what it's saying here. You should know who your pastor is. You know, it's a funny question, really. And then is, I have a question for some Christians. Who is your pastor? Who is your pastor? Now, it would appear to me, to, for some, and certainly not very many in our church, but for some, it, I, would, uh, I would suggest that I am not your pastor because uh, your pastor is a Bible teacher somewhere else, maybe a beloved person uh, for some, whatever reason, but I am not your pastor. And as long as I agree with your pastor, everything's cool. But sadly, if uh, something goes awry, then I'm no longer your pastor. Now, let me just say what Paul is saying here. Unless you can move to that particular city and then be under that particular pastor and then join that particular church and put yourself under their accountability, then really you don't have a pastor. Now, they may be a teacher to you, and you may have a lot of respect, but I ask the question again, who is your pastor? Who is your pastor? And that's what Paul is saying here. Know who your pastor is. Know where you get your spiritual leadership. They give account for your soul. You say, well, so-and-so is my pastor. Well, then the next question is, do they know it? Do they know that they're your pastor? Because if they know you're, you're, they're, you're, you're their sheep, then they are now accountable. There's all kinds of Christians I meet all over, and I love them. I, uh, I respect them. We have a wonderful time. But I don't feel accountable for them, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I feel accountable just in love, and as, but I don't feel accountable. Now, but for the people who call this their church home, oh, yes. I feel very accountable. 
You say, what does that mean biblically? Well, it means that I am praying and I am asking God and I am concerned about your spiritual growth. I may not be able to talk to you very often or very little at all, but the fact is that doesn't mean that I'm not very concerned. And let me just add another honest fact that you need to know. Did you realize that many TV, many radio, and many internet pastors could not qualify to be a real pastor? Did you know that the most stringent of all qualifications in all of Scripture are for a pastor? There's actually 15, at least 15 qualifications, including those for the wife. They're found in 1 Timothy, they're found in Titus, they're found in 1 Peter. The fact is, the most stringent of all biblical offices is that of a pastor. There are many of these that could not qualify. There are these gals that are up there preaching away, and many of them have some good things to say, but they cannot be your pastor. Your pastor is one that you know, and they know you're, you're their sheep, and that's what it's saying here. Let, let, me, uh, let me continue on. It says that we ought to make sure that we love them and esteem them and care for them. We ought to esteem them very highly. In Scripture, it says, esteem them very highly for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. We ought to make sure that we uh, are behind them and uh, to uh, connect with them and love them. We had uh, one man in our church who got all gnarled up, you know, about something because I had made a decision, didn't go his way. And I noticed something interesting about, uh, and that's what this verse says here. It says, esteem, the first Thessalonians chapter 5 says, to esteem them very highly for their work's sake and be at peace among yourself. To esteem them very highly. I noticed something about this brother. You know, when he, at first he called me pastor. And then something uh, changed about his, the way he addressed me. And I'm not really hung up on, you know, uh, titles, but uh, I noticed that just before, uh, sadly, and unsurprisingly, he left bitter. One day we met in the bathroom and he said, uh, hey, Timmy, how you doing? And I thought, you know what, that man, he's not going to be long. And it, surely he wasn't. The fact is, these esteeming and, you know, uh, someday you may not have this pastor here. You may have another one. And that uh, disrespect is something that is rampant. It is rampant in Hollywood. I was telling Pauline, every time we ever watch any show, movie, whatever, 99% of the time, Hollywood always shows a, a spiritual person uh, as a bad person, some buffoon, or he's greedy, or uneducated, or uh, immoral, or unloving, or harsh, you name it. But the Bible is very clear. God said, you ought to, Paul said, know your pastor, make sure 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, know them which labor among you and be at peace among yourselves. Three important reasons, he said, why we ought to stop complaining. Number one, for the sake of our own person, who we are and what we are as a son of God, stop complaining. It just, it's, it's unclassy. It is not who you are. Number two, stop complaining for the sake of people. We are a shining light in a dark world. It is a crooked world. It is a perverse world. And we are the lights that have been launched into this world. And then finally, Paul said, look, 
if for no other reason, stop complaining for the sake of your pastor. They put so much work into this thing, and uh, they want to rejoice in heaven. Don't break his heart. Respect them, know them, esteem them, and be at peace. Be at peace with your pastor. Be at peace with one another. Because the more you complain, uh, the more problems truly you're going to have. I want to close with a little story. And if you can put that picture up here for me. Um, it's hard to really see, but uh, last year, Pauline and I, as a, uh, emissaries from our church, got a chance to go to the South Pacific Island, a very impoverished, uh, one of the least developed countries in the world, right off of Australia called Vanuatu. And uh, one of the days we uh, got a chance to take the pastors, or the pastor took us, but his family and several of the young people from the church there. We uh, went down to the water and uh, we uh, laid in the water there for a little bit. But uh, on the right, you see the pastor's daughter there. I forget her name, Elizabeth or something. And um, then uh, two sisters, the one sister to the far left is holding the one sister's leg her prosthetic leg. And the one girl in the middle, it might look like she's just bending her leg, but it's not. She's missing her leg. The reason she's missing her leg is because uh, her mom uh, tried to abort her. And in the, it was a terrible thing that happened to her. But uh, I've always thought about this girl. And it's hard to see, but she is throwing her head back. She is laughing and she is just howling with joy because she is making her two friends drag her up from the down there at the water there. And they are just having a big time. And her other sister's holding her leg like that and uh, laughing. Now, these girls have almost nothing. I mean, just a little mat to lay on every night, just a little bit of food. Has a leg that's uh, chopped off, has parents that didn't even love her. And here she is. She got saved at this church, the Luganville Baptist Church there. And she is so excited about the Lord. Here she is with uh, her little white missionary friend. But they're just loving her. And I tell you what, her life is transformed because Jesus came in. Now, if anybody has a lot to complain about, it'd be this young girl. And yet here she is just serving the Lord, having a big time. God, make me like her. Just, man, you lose your leg, you just keep on going. Somehow, some way, we're going to not complain. For the sake of my person who I am, I'm a son of God. For the sake of the people around me, I'm to be their shining light. And for the sake of my spiritual leaders, they put a lot of work in. Let's not fuss. Let's not make their uh, job harder than it is. Let's get behind them. Let's esteem them highly. Let's know them, as the Apostle Paul said. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.